being able to do this incredibly important work and I do it for Lizzie and women like her who are invisible, are voiceless, are not heard, and who die when they don't need to. Welcome to The Mom Pod, a bi-weekly podcast series by Girls Globe that connects mothers and caregivers with each other and with the latest research and information on topics related to maternal, newborn, and child health, childbirth, pregnancy, motherhood, child development, and much, much more. We create a space for powerful conversations that strengthen mothers and caregivers. My name is Julia Wicklender, and I'm the founder of Girls Globe, the co-founder of The Mom Pod, and I'm your host for this episode of The Mom Pod. In this episode, we will meet with leaders that are working to save the lives of mothers and babies, who I had the chance to sit down with during the Women Deliver conference in Copenhagen a few weeks ago. Women Deliver 2016 was the largest gathering of the decade, focusing on women's rights, health, and well-being. At Women Deliver, I had an intimate conversation with Denise Dunning, founder and executive director of Rise Up. Denise shares the story of the birth of her third child, an experience that didn't go as planned, and the experiences of women she knows around the world who haven't been as lucky as her. Denise talks about the importance of raising the voices of women and girls and what Rise Up does to strengthen the rights and health of women and girls worldwide. One of the first events that I went to at Women Deliver was Scaling Innovations to Save the Lives of Mothers and Babies, an event by Every Woman, Every Child, Concern Worldwide, Maternity Foundation, MSD for Mothers, Philips, Grand Challenges Canada, and PATH. The one-hour event was a fast-paced discussion with innovators, investors, and corporate and government leaders on what's needed to move innovations from the pipeline to the front lines to save more women and babies. In the crowd after the event, I had the opportunity to connect with some of the panelists. Pam Bolton from Concern Worldwide, Martin van Herpen from Philips, and Dr. Priya Argerwell from MSD for Mothers. I am Pam Bolton. I work with Concern Worldwide, which is an Irish headquartered NGO that does development and humanitarian work in the 29 poorest countries of the world where women and girls have relatively fewer opportunities and many of them are not very egalitarian. In any event, I lead a program called Innovations for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health. So our objective is to find new ways to get to overcome some of the old thorny problems that prevent women, moms and babies from accessing care when they need it and being able to thrive. Mm. Um, can you speak about a few innovations that you would like to um, mention and highlight in particular? Yeah, absolutely. So I think on the one hand, there are the ones that are more tech-based, like the ones that uh, the Royal Dutch Philips Healthcare Technology Company has uh, developed. So for example, uh, a very simple Doppler to measure a baby's or a, or a fetus's heartbeat that doesn't require electricity. It's a bit techy though, you know, it's a device. But then other types of innovations like the ones that we are doing in my program are not new so much as modified and improved devices. So for example, um, a suction device to help babies breathe by clearing their nasal passages um, can be made much more durable and suitable for a, a low-income setting. 
So uh, the example I gave in this session was um, the suction machine that the nurses and the midwives are currently using was, you know, it, it's designed for very smooth floors when you roll it around, but their floors are bumpy so the wheels break or it's hard to clean and it's hard to get the spare parts. Another problem, um, so we had the nurses actually working directly with designers and this is human-centered design and it's all about putting yourself in the shoes and in the headspace of the person who is using and interacting with this device every day of usually her life and um, through that technique we were able to get better designs to iterate keep improving so not only the wheels but also the the way in which the bottles are attached to the device when you roll it on a bumpy floor in Kenyatta National Hospital or even a more rural clinic, the bottles would fall out and they break. So we just strengthen the attachment and we put some padding so that it's not glass on metal that's going bumpity bump bump bump. So those are the sorts of things and that's just making more affordable, locally designed, locally built devices that can help providers do what they are trained and skilled to do. So that's and, a big one. Yeah, amazing. And um, have you seen any impact on, on how human-centered design has made a difference? Well, that is a tough question because it's hard to, you can't exactly do a randomized controlled trial. But we work with a partner called John Snow, Inc., the Research and Training Institute, and they've been working with us to really figure out how to assess the impact of human-centered design and design thinking. So some of the hypotheses are, well, it should increase the fit of the solution to the problem. It should fit better. It should increase the sense of buy-in and ownership among the people that this is being developed for. Um, and uh, it would be more conducive to to scale up. So we're kind of testing those hypotheses a lot through um, talking with the people who've been involved with the program. So it's not super scientific in, you know, in the, the sense of what you would do for a new drug or, you know, something like that, but it's um, our attempt to see, does this really make a difference? And we think it does because there's so much more engagement. And for example, should I give another example? Yeah, sure. Um, so we're working with community health nurses in Ghana who work with women and families in their communities and go house to house and are both doing preventive education and counseling and treatment. So we have a smartphone app for, for them, CHN On The Go, um, that we developed completely in tandem. Really, the nurses developed it and we just had our, you know, our partners at Grameen Foundation did the coding to make it work, but um, they then can help, they can have some help to diagnose something that they might not be familiar with by consulting their phone. There's images on there, there's videos, um, and it, it really supports them in their daily work out with, with women, so it's um, something that's very practical. The fun thing about the mom pod is that it resonates with so many people. The fact that we are connecting mothers and caregivers around the world to each other and to the latest research and information is so important to truly make a difference. Because we are change makers with so much power in our hands and with the need for support to do the most important things in our lives, care for our children and make sure that their future is bright. Here's what Pam Bolton had to add to this conversation. And I just want to say one thing as a mom, I mean, the, the point that you made before we started the interview about connection among moms. I remember when I was first, um, had my first son, I have two boys, and then I went to Guatemala on a work trip, and I just remember having this sense of incredible connection with, you know, there were Mayan women just in a market, and this woman here, and her, her baby had something, his eyes were kind of roomy, and, and she was asking me what, what I could, you know, if I knew what to do to help, and I, I, 
I felt like, wow, you know, my, my kid is about the same age, and I felt such a bond with her. And, um, you know, the fact that she was asking for my advice sort of suggested that she too felt a bond with this other mom and her mm. baby. So yeah. I think it's a very powerful force. Mm. Very it, powerful. It definitely is, and we can. there's so much we can learn from each other. And, yeah, that connection is there, and the needs that we have are similar, both to be, just yeah. to be able to care for our babies. I'm uh, Maarten van Herp and I'm uh, Head of Innovation uh, at Philips Africa. And you were a panelist at the Scaling Up Innovations uh, to Save the Lives of Mothers and Babies today. Um, speaking about innovations, and you showed a few very interesting ones as well. Could you speak a little bit about these innovations that uh, you are working with that really make a difference for mothers and especially newborns and babies? Yeah, so I, I gave some examples of innovations that I call equitable innovations. Uh, it's, it's because there are so many people in Africa that don't have access to healthcare. Uh, it's, it's not fairly distributed, it's not equitable. And, um, and the problem is that uh, a solution would be innovation, uh, to really make specific solutions for them. Uh, but the problem is that those innovations are not there. There's also no equitable access for innovation. Uh, that's also not fairly distributed. And that's because the companies are used to make products for uh, the richer people. That's their normal target group. And if you then ask them to make something for a new group of people, a vulnerable group that actually we are trying to reach with the sustainable development goals of the UN, if you ask them to do that, they, they find it very difficult because they go back to their normal customers and, 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 and ask them, do you need this? And then the answer will be, no, 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 we need, we just, uh, we need stuff for in the hospitals, uh, not for in, in these communities. And, and that's what, what is causing, that's the dilemma that these companies are facing. And what we at Philips did is we create a new group within Philips. That's called the Philips Africa Innovation Hub. And, and this is a, an independent group, so we can break away from the normal way of working and really focus at this, this group of people and create innovations specifically for them that are what we call locally relevant. Mm. And, and I showed some examples of, uh, of those innovations that we've been doing, creating now, in just two years' time. So that's really showing it, it's working. So one of the devices I showed was the, the Doppler ultrasound fetal heart rate monitor. And it's a wind-up fetal heart rate monitor. What, me what that means is that the, the device where normally you would, you would charge it with, with, with power, and this device you can charge this as well, it has a battery. But if you are in a low resource setting in Africa, in many cases there is no power. So if, you, if the battery is, is down, uh, you, yeah, you need to somehow be able to, to charge it. And that's why our device has, at the backside has this crank. So you, you can turn it around, if you turn it for one minute, there's 10 minutes of power again. And then the midwife can use the device again. And it's very strong, so uh, very robust. And actually, when I, when I said that in the panel, the, the moderator, Femi, she said, oh, show us, throw it. So actually, I, I threw the device on the, on the floor and showed that it's really strong. And, and, and what it is for, the device, it is for, uh, for measuring the heart rate of a baby during delivery. Because if the heart rate goes down, that's a sign of oxygen shortage. Um, so, and this is an automatic device that does that. So they, you, you touch that, point it to the belly, and find the baby, and it will. You can hear the heart of the baby, and and you can see the heart rate as well. And, and that is really helping uh, a midwife in in a setting like this. 
And you explain, can you explain a little bit more about how, how much a difference this makes compared <coughs> to using um, one of those horns? <laughs> Is that, that what right. they're called? Yeah. yeah. So you, you, um, uh, you're referring to the Pinar horn. Yeah. It's, it's like a stethoscope. Yeah, this is the most most widely used medical device in the world. That's a horn that is being used to listen to the heart of the baby um, yeah, with your ears. But it's not easy because the heart rate of a baby in, in the belly is it's, it's 140 beats a minute. And, and, and try to count that and, and uh, try not to count the heart rate of the mother. <laughs> and uh, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's a noisy situation in many cases. It's very hard to do. And this device does that automatically. So that, that is really uh, really making a difference. Now, the NGO that actually invented this one, because it's not a Philips invention, it was an NGO that came up with this. And they tested it in, uh, in Uganda, and they detected 60% more abnormal fetal heart rates in their in the, in the test. And, and then they came to us and said, oh, this has big impact. Uh, can you help us scale this? And, and that's why Philips is now investing, and really taking this to the market and taking it to scale to get it into the hands of yeah, the midwives that need this. There was a lot of conversation about how the private sector can be involved, um, but you also spoke about how you're changing these community-level primary primary care centers, uh, healthcare centers, into buzzing entrepreneurship hubs um, of innovation. Can you explain how that is happening and, and how you think that can actually make a difference? Yeah, I gave that example because um, innovation is not only about uh, technolo technological innovations, but it's also about the business model on, on how you sell these things and how you take them to the to the market. And um, so our biggest project in the Africa Innovation Hub is actually in the, in that area. Um, so we created the community life centers. That that is a, what we call a community-driven approach to to primary healthcare. So I'm talking about the the clinic in these communities, uh, the uh, the local clinic. And if you look across Africa, the quality of care at these clinics is not very good. Um, and actually, that's that's why when a mother is, is delivering a baby, she, she doesn't go to that clinic. What she does is, is she, she stays at home, the delivery there, or they try to skip and, and go to the big hospital, which is which is far away. Um, and this is leading to a high mortality of mothers in uh, in Africa, because if you deliver at home and you get into an emergency, that's there's actually not a chance to survive because you cannot get to the hospital in time anymore. Uh, and the other ones that they that are trying to get to the big hospital, this is a, a traveling very far. It can sometimes be a day or more to get there. Um, and then they actually, so we see them dying on the way, but also a lot of them are dying actually in, in the hospital, in the corridors, waiting uh, to be helped. And that's because everybody does that. So it's, it's overcrowded at those, at those hospitals. Now what we're trying to do is to bring the care to those communities. So by improving the quality of healthcare in these community clinics, so that people can go there for the deliveries, uh, and, and if needed, that, that they are deferred. Um, and we, we took um, a community-based approach for that, which means that we started to work with the local government, but also with the local community, to find out what is it that you need here. And, and then the community said, oh, we need, we need power, because that's not, the, the power is on and off here, and we need a reliable source of electricity. So they asked for a solar solar power. So we, we put that down, and then they said we need lighting, because it's 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 we need to have a, be able to safely approach the clinic at night. Uh, so we put lights around the clinic, uh, also lights inside, because also mothers are also delivering babies at night, right? Um, so and and that that already had a big impact. And then we used the power for medical devices. So there's an ultrasound machine, 
um, and with the ultrasound machine we can screen for high-risk pregnancies. Uh, and then what happened with, with all that combined is that the, the community started setting up shops around the clinic. And because there's lighting, at night that's, people started gathering there. It, it, they started doing social activities, uh, sports for example, football being played in the area, uh, shops being set up, and, and, and so social and economic activity around the clinic. And that basically changed that, that community clinic into a, what we could call a community hub. And now the clinic is using that to actually start generating some, some money from that. And so, for example, they, they, there's a, a borehole with water because the community was asking for water. And we can sell the water to the community, and that gives also a bit of income for the clinic that they can use to buy medicine again, for example. And they can rent out the space that the, the, where the shops are to also drive a bit of extra income for the clinic. And so, and that is that is turning it into a complete package. Uh, training is another part of it. Uh, all the health workers need, need proper training to be able to to bring good quality care. And we are working with NGOs to do that. Uh, an important NGO in that aspect is, is MREF. Mm. So MREF is doing the training of the, the volunteers and the community health workers, mm. so that they can go out into the communities and, and help mm. people there. And we see big impact. So if you now look at this this example that I'm I'm now talking about. The number of patients has risen, has risen four times, but even more important, the number of antenatal visits, so this is checkups for mothers that come for, to the clinic, is up 15 times. Uh, and um, it, the deliveries, for example, we now get 39 deliveries every month, where before it was zero. And so this is showing that the community has trust in this clinic, and it's, it's becoming that gatekeeper for the, for the rest of the health system, so that, you, so that they seek the care there, it's, it's releasing the burden of the bigger hospital, and it's a timely referral in case of, of a high-risk pregnancy. Femi Oki, who moderated the panel at the Scaling Innovations to Save the Lives of Mothers and Babies, asked the panelists to introduce themselves by stating what would be on their business cards. Dr. Priya Agrawal made a strong mark by stating that on her business card, it would read, creating a world where no woman dies giving life. I asked her to introduce herself a bit more and tell us how she's working to create that world. My name's Dr. Priya Agrawal. I'm Executive Director of MSD for Mothers, which is MSD's $500 million commitment, 10 years, to creating a world where no woman dies while giving life. My background, I'm in OB, uh, I've worked in many settings and I still remember the faces of the women I've lost either because there were the equipment wasn't there, the women didn't know when to come in, the typical three delays that we often talk about uh, because I'm an overtrained provider uh, but I can't do it on my own. The buzz of the crowd made our conversation a little bit difficult to capture. I asked Priya to speak about what innovations she sees that can be scaled and really make an impact. She said that although she doesn't believe high tech always means high impact, she thinks we should see technology as a positive disruptor. She gave the example of how mobile phones can put information directly in the hands of women so that they can decide on issues that impact their lives, like family planning. She told us the example of a mobile app that gives women the option to self-counsel to find the best contraceptive method and know where to access that particular method. Phones also give women the ability to pay for the care they need. Thirdly, Priya mentions the new mobile innovation 
that they are calling care to share or just listen, which is like a trip advisor or Yelp for help, which uses women's ability to assess and report on quality of care in various facilities. And I think it's amazing if you can have a company that can do good and do well. During the event, there was a bit of a debate as to whether companies can do good without market powers and still scale those initiatives. Priya said that there is a role for hands-off markets and there is a role for strategic corporate social responsibility, or CSR, which is what MSD for Mothers is. To bring everything that makes MSD a successful company, everything they know, their business, and scientific expertise to drive improvement. Priya gave me the example of oxytocin. It is a lifesaver and the game changer, she called it. But it is not heat stable. So in the countries where the women are dying, by the time oxytocin is given, it isn't working. MSD found out that a purely commercial company had a heat stable version of oxytocin, but they weren't doing anything because they can't make money off of it. That's where MSD for Mothers CSR came in and said, we don't need the license and we don't want the product. What we want is WHO to run an independent study and if the product is not found inferior, then let's make it affordable for the 90 high burden countries that you don't care about and you can make your money on the others. That's why Priya warns us to be careful not to paint all private sector companies with the same brush. The private sector knows how to scale and there are opportunities to leverage that knowledge, skills, and expertise, and it really isn't all about the money. My name is Denise Dunning, and I am the founder and executive director of Rise Up, which is an organization that advances health, education, and equity for girls, youth, and women around the world. And essentially what we do is identify and invest in in-country leaders who are doing usually really important work on a small scale and give them the tools, the resources, the training, and the networks to be able to create much larger scale impact. Uh, so oftentimes I describe that and people say that we're an angel investor in the social sector. So basically finding the best and brightest leaders and investing in their ideas to create large-scale change that benefits girls, youth, and women around the world. That's fantastic. And you're a mother too. Your latest childbirth was um, yeah, a very different story. Um, can you tell me about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and a seven-month-old. And um, the seven-year-old and the four-year-old, you know, I was very committed to having a natural birth and non-medical intervention and um, as much as I could. And I was fortunate and it went that way. And on my last pregnancy, I ended up having a lot of different complications. So I had um, gestational diabetes. Well, actually, I had that throughout all three pregnancies, but I had diabetes. And then in this last pregnancy, my blood pressure started to go up 
towards the end of the pregnancy. And I have a really great OB, a great doctor, who was really careful about watching it. And um, so as my blood pressure started to go up, she started to really do extra monitoring and extra testing and antepartum testing and, you know, just making sure that even though it was um, starting to be problematic, that other things weren't happening. So, you know, I would go, I mean, it was almost almost comical, like I was almost in the doctor's office every single day, you know, either with her or um, with the specialists at UCSF who were checking my blood pressure, who were checking my blood, who were checking my urine, who were checking the amniotic fluid, who were checking the baby's heartbeat, the baby's movement. I mean, it was um, sort of a, an amazing amount of testing and um, sort of supervision. And anyway, so that went on for several weeks. And you know, it was really stressful because um, you never know what's going to happen. And I was incredibly lucky and blessed that I um, was able to, you know, live in a place where there is access to good medical care and where um, medical intervention, if necessary, is available. And so even though it wasn't what I had hoped for, it was reassuring to know that that was an option. Because we, you know, in my work, we work with a lot of women who that is not the reality for by any stretch of the imagination and anyway so um, basically kind of at my 30th week things started to get more and more complex and they started to monitor me more closely and um, you know towards the end I was at 37 weeks and had gone in to see my doctor on a Thursday and she said you know your your blood pressure is still a little high I think it's gonna be fine um, what we're just gonna do is just keep monitoring you will probably induce you at 39 weeks, um, you know, because you're almost 40 at the time. And um, we will just, you know, make sure that everything's fine. So I said, okay, you know, that's fine. Can we do uh, an extra round of blood work just in case, just to make sure? Because she had done some blood work a few weeks before, but it had been a while. And she said, oh, you know, I don't actually think we need to. But, you know, if you want, sure. So that was Thursday, and then I felt terrible over the weekend and basically didn't do anything and kept feeling worse and worse and, uh, um, you know, also was not sleeping well and everything else, and um, but just feeling really terrible. And so uh, on Monday morning, I uh, woke up with my daughter running into my phone at 7 in the morning, and she shoves my phone into my in front of my ear, and, um, and I was just waking up and barely slept the night before, and I... So I said, I have a sort of funny, I said, please just go away and let me sleep to my daughter. And um, I heard my doctor's voice on the other end of my phone saying, oh, I'm so sorry to bother you. I said, oh, Dr. Fang, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to say that to you. And, and she said, you know, as it turns out, you know, your blood work came back. I got it first thing this morning. And I actually think we should go ahead and induce you now. And, um, and she was very calm and she's very lovely human being. And, uh, and I said, Oh, you know, I have an appointment with you later today. I'd much rather just wait. Is it okay if we rerun the blood work? You know, maybe things have shifted back. And, and, um, she talked to me for a little bit and then said, you know, so I'm going to, you know, hang up the phone now and I'm going to call the hospital and they'll have a bed ready for you in half an hour. So I want you to get your clothes on and get in the car. Um, so I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess that's how it's going to go. So, I, um, so we went to the hospital, basically, and um, did an induction, which I was fortunate because it went very well. And, um, and I ended up having a baby 
that afternoon. So in the end, it was scary um, because I realized, you know, both through my work, but also, you know, just from, you know, having experience with friends and many other women around the world who have had all kinds of complications that in many cases haven't gone well and some people who have died. I knew, you know, that I was, it was a bad situation. And so I just tried to focus on staying calm and staying positive and trusting that I have a good doctor and a good team. And um, I ended up just being incredibly lucky. So what in the end happened is that I had a thing called HELP syndrome. HELP syndrome stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelet count. In other words, really bad news. Which basically is an extreme form of preeclampsia. And um, is, I found out later, I didn't know this at the time, is um, globally one in four women who have HELP syndrome die. Um, because essentially your body just basically begins to shut down. And so that was what I had. And I was fortunate because essentially the cure of preeclampsia and HELP syndrome is delivering the baby. And they were able to watch me closely enough that when it got to that point, knew that I had to deliver the baby. And so I did and was incredibly lucky and blessed that I was able to have a healthy baby end up, you know, shortly thereafter my, you know, body went back to how it was supposed to be. I didn't end up with liver failure. I didn't end up with a stroke. I didn't end up with a lot of the complications that women get when they have eclampsia. Um, and so I was incredibly lucky. Mm. You became a mother that was several years ago um, for the first time. How has that affected your work with Rise Up? Mm, that's a good question. You know, I think that I've always been committed to girls' and women's health and rights broadly. And, um, you know, in terms of access to education, access to services, and reproductive rights, and health, and... Um, have always felt that that is deeply important. And I think becoming a mother has made me still believe very much in all of those fundamental rights for women and girls and also become even more committed as well on issues like childcare and universal health care and um, paid parental leave and um, sort of the tricky balance that so many of us have that, you know, have um, families and have jobs of how you balance having, you know, the, both the need to work and the joy of the work that I do as with, the, you know, having three children who need me and want me and, um, you know, being at this conference is wonderful and I also know it's really tough on the kids and so being able to support them from afar when I'm traveling and um, have, you know, try to model for them, because I have two daughters and so now a baby boy, um, try to model for them and show them that I can have a career that does try to help women and girls around the world, not to the exclusion of the fact that, you know, they're my family and they're my children and that... Um, they too are girls who one day will become women, who one day will hopefully, you know, be able to balance these many conflicting things that we often juggle. In your work with Rise Up, um, you've come into contact with many women around the world, um, as you mentioned as well. Um, and how is meeting them, um, how is that sort of the mothers that you've met, are there any, is there any 
example of or an encounter that you would like to share with us that has you know impacted your view of motherhood and of becoming a mother in different parts of the world yeah i mean one um one who comes to mind is you know i mean so many come to mind and so many amazing women and mothers that i've been incredibly honored to learn from in our work and see you know the amazing ways that they juggle so many things multiple children multiple jobs like um, the challenges that they face in doing the work that they do on the ground every day fighting for girls and women's rights with so little resources in terms of both the work that they do in terms of their family life and yet they just keep going every single day and they are an incredible inspiration to me and you know the Anytime that I'm like, oh, how am I going to do this? I just think of, you know, the 15 amazing women who do so much more than me every single day in terms of both fighting for girls and women's rights and fighting for their own children and keeping their own children healthy and happy and growing and in school and um, in the context of far, far, far more limited resources and far greater challenges than I have to face. Um, so I think that is a part of it. I think another that I've been thinking a lot lately is a woman who was actually the sister of my colleague in Malawi. So uh, my colleague Joyce in Malawi is um, uh, work runs our Rise Up work in Malawi with women and girls. And I was at the UN with her last spring advocating for girls and women's health and rights um, during the UN Commission on the Status of Women. And, you know, Joyce is this amazing advocate and does advocacy at the national level in Malawi, globally, and um, was there. We were in all these different meetings advocating with decision makers to prioritize girls and women's health and rights as part of the Sustainable Development Goals. And um, while we were in New York, Joyce learned that her little sister, Lizzie, who was 20 years old at the time, had just died during childbirth. And... Essentially what had happened, Lizzie was 20, healthy, had a healthy pregnancy, um, went to the hospital, gave birth, and um, began to hemorrhage. And there wasn't a clean supply of blood available for her. And, um, you know, Joyce and Lizzie are from a rural area. Their mother was very poor and uneducated. Her mother was there with her um, and was asking the doctors for help. And Lizzie was saying that she felt dizzy and saying that she felt faint and... Um, getting weaker and her mother was asking for help but didn't know how to push and really push to make the nurses listen and so Lizzie died and um, you know I think often of her because what she went through is the reality that so many women especially poor women and women who are marginalized and Women who nobody cares about. That's the reality that they face. So, you know, for me, like, that's what I think about is being able to do this incredibly important work. And I do it for Lizzie and women like her who are invisible, are voiceless, are not heard, and who die when they don't need to. I believe that sharing stories and sharing my own story can be a source of power and I've seen that in the girls and women that we work with 
and enabling them to amplify their voices and share their stories and help people to understand that despite the incredible challenges that they face and the amazing obstacles, that they're not victims and that they have incredible power and are able to create change. And with just a little bit of support and commitment from the global community and decision makers, they can do amazing, amazing things. Um, and so I think it's really important to share stories to help people who don't live those realities every day understand what those realities, at least in a small way, can understand what those realities are. Um, and I also feel like sharing stories, I mean, stories are universal, right? And so my experience could be really different from yours, which is really different from every other person's. And yet there are pieces that we can all share and learn from one another. And I feel like I learned so much from the girls and women that we work with. And by being able to help amplify their voices, my hope is that other people can learn from them as well. There is still so much that needs to be done to make sure that mothers and babies don't die during pregnancy and childbirth. We all have a part to play to raise our voices to advocate for and with women and girls. You can find out more about the work of Rise Up at riseuptogether.org. Thankfully, smart innovations, human-centered design, mobile connectivity, global advocacy, and national leadership is creating change for mothers, babies, and communities around the world. Find out more about the innovations presented at the Scaling Innovations to Save the Lives of Mothers and Babies event via the links in this episode's blog post on girlsglobe.org. Do you want to support Girls Globe to continue with these important conversations? We are currently looking for sponsors to the MomPod. We would be happy to provide you with more information about what sponsorship entails so send us an email to themompod at girlsglobe.org. Also, if you are an individual who loves listening to this podcast, you can also donate. And if you want, you can even become a monthly donor to The MomPod. Find out more at girlsglobe.org slash themompod. Thank you for listening to this episode of The MomPod, your global village for mothers and caregivers.